0: So the other announcement is that the entire building has air conditioning. <laughs> now, <laughs> we're we're like 75% done with the air conditioning, but at least it's up and running. And that means that it's um, relatively cool all the way through the building. So that's a really cool thing. The funny story about all of that was on Wednesday when it's pouring... I'm at Bookman's and I get a call saying we just got the air conditioning up but somehow we've locked ourselves out and it's raining and we can't get back in the building so I had to go and let the air conditioning people back into the building Um, but Wednesday's rain was crazy or was it Thursday? I don't remember awesome Well, maybe (laughs) you're like me, um, other than standing up in front of people, and and that you end up in a room like this or any other room, and you think, I'm not like all of these people. Um, and, And in some ways, you just feel, I don't know if you've ever had that feeling, but I have it often where it's like, I'm with a whole bunch of people, but I'm alone. Like, I'm alone. There's something, like, there's just something that I don't feel connected to whatever the vibe is that these people have or that other people have. But we could take that even one step further in that, like, it's not just that I feel alone. Often I think I'm in a crowd of people and I think, well, if these people really knew me, they would reject me or at least it's going to be really vulnerable. Let me give you an example. I'm a pastor, and so by my employment, I have to hang out with a whole bunch of other pastors sometimes. I've tried to avoid this for a long time, um, but the reason that I usually avoid it is that when I sit with a bunch of pastors, inevitably there are going to be two questions that are going to happen. Number one, it's going to be, where did you go to seminary? The answer will be, I never went to seminary. And that's a little vulnerable. But then the next question will be, well, where did you get your Bible degree? And I'll say, well, I spent seven years in college and never got a degree. So even when I sit with pastors, I feel kind of alone, even when I'm in a crowd of peers, right? Maybe you feel that way too. Or or maybe you're like me, and it's not so much just things that I didn't have complete control over or maybe a few poor choices in my past that I don't want people to see. But maybe it's just that there are things that I really don't want you to know about. And I'm a little nervous that you'll figure it out and you'll find out that I'm a fraud. Because I'm pretty sure I am. And the reason I know that is because even internally, I tend to feel alone. Right? Because... And not even just alone, like conflicted. Because half of me really feels like I'm trying hard and doing well. And the other half of me is pretty sure that I'm screwed up and I could tell you how. And I just can't get control of my impulses inside of me. Like I just can't control them. I want to control them. And so having all of that angst and sitting with a bunch of people makes me feel alone. But also, I think, as a follower of Jesus, I tend to find myself in our larger culture with a very different value system, talking about life and the world and politics and all those kinds of things with people who aren't followers of Jesus and don't share the same kind of value systems. And so, even though I'd like to be friends and connect, there is something between us where I feel alone. But even more, when I begin to think about all that and I go down the slide of all that, now I'm getting depressed um, of all this loneliness, the reality is, is that a lot of times when I start going there, I begin to think, you know what? I've just messed up enough that it's too embarrassing to be around people or it's too terrifying and maybe God has actually just abandoned me or left me to my own devices. Especially when... Consequences begin to pile up for my choices. I begin to think maybe God has abandoned me. Well, we're wrapping up a series on Zephaniah, and we've called it Zeph and Destruction. And all through this book, what we've experienced is God saying things aren't good to the people of Israel. So Zephaniah is this prophet who talked to the the nation of israel in particular the southern kingdom in 640 bc and all that zephaniah had to say to the people were bad 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 is going to happen bad 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 is going to happen bad on the small scale bad on the big scale bad is happening right and so we jump into chapter three which is the last chapter And we kind of just pick up where we left off on all of this badness. Zephaniah says, Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning." Her prophets are unprincipled, they are treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. This description that God is giving through Zephaniah is a description of where Israel and particularly Judah and the city of Jerusalem is. That the state of the people, when I read it, it sounds like a very rebellious teenager. Right? I mean, it's, it's, she doesn't obey. She accepts no correction. She doesn't trust her parents, and she doesn't draw near. She has no relationship with her parents, right? Not only that is that she's somewhat destructive, like a lion, like she's selfish. She's just devouring of things. But more than anything, when I read these things, I'm kind of struck by the fact that in some ways, or in a lot of ways, It's me. It's you. That there is at my core a person who does not like to be corrected. I do not like it. I'm not saying that for effect. I don't like to be corrected. I do not like to be wrong. To my my poor mothers, like she had to raise me as a teenager, who never liked to be wrong, which I think is probably inherent in most teenagers, but I was mouthy about it. So... I always wanted to prove that I was right and I did not like being corrected and I always worked on an argument as to why my mother or anyone else was wrong. Which when you correct me or point out things, I guarantee you in my head there's a conversation about how you're wrong even if I'm smiling (laughs) and looking at you and saying I'm going to take your rebuke. Because inside of me, I want to be in control and I do not like to be corrected. When I look at these things, I think, man, this, this is me. This is probably you at some level. Now, here's the thing, is, is God is distressed. And he's like, nope, you aren't listening. You aren't taking correction. And then he talks about the kings and the priests and the prophets, the pillars of culture. And he says, not even these people are willing to be principled and take care of the people and direct them in a direction. Now, let's see where I'm. Oh, there's a battle going on. All right. I'll just put this back and not touch it. Julie, do you have a clicker? No, you gave me the clicker. Okay. Will you click for me when I'm... Not now. Okay, good. Anyway, sorry for that pause there. But I think one of the things that I can find myself kind of in when I begin to read this and when I begin to really examine my life or when I just find myself in a depressed state or when I find that the consequences of life have finally caught up with me is that I end up with a statement that God has abandoned me. That God has abandoned me. And, and I sit with a lot of people as a pastor, and I hear that, if not directly, indirectly. That is that God has abandoned me. Like, why is this this way? Or, man, I have just messed it up that God doesn't want to be with me at all. And so I, I, I do wrestle often with this thought of God Has abandoned me. But in verse 5 of of chapter 3, Zephaniah says this, or the Lord says this through Zephaniah The Lord within her, speaking of the city, is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning he dispenses his justice, and every new day he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. When I was reading over this and reflecting, all of a sudden that that line hit me, the Lord within her is righteous. Not the Lord on the outside of the city, not the Lord up in the sky, not the Lord hanging out in the mountains, but the Lord within the city is living out righteousness and dispensing justice. And I thought, you know what? In the midst of all of this, God says, I haven't gone anywhere. I haven't abandoned you. All this time while you're doing what you want to do, there I am in the city with you. And what I heard, and what I'd like you to hear tonight, if you hear nothing else, is this statement. God has not abandoned you. I promise you that there will be times in your life, if it's not now, where you feel abandoned by God. And what I want you to hear is God has not abandoned you. God has not abandoned you. He had not abandoned Israel. While they were disobedient and doing what they wanted to do, while they were being rebellious teenagers, he stayed with them. God did not abandon them. In the New Testament, it's the story of Jesus. And one of my favorite verses comes out of the Gospel of John because it is for me a statement that God has not abandoned me. That when I find the dark night of the soul, when I'm wrestling with my own identity and my own value, I come to John 1, verse 14, that says the word, and this is speaking of Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The God of the universe came and dwelt with us. John goes on in his letter to the churches in 1 John to say, we hung out with the Word, with God. We touched Him. We heard Him. We smelled Him. We knew Him. The God of the universe entered into time and said, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to abandon you. I want you you to hear that tonight. In the moments when things are hard, I want you to hear that God has not abandoned you. He is with you in the city, practicing righteousness and justice every morning. But it's not necessarily enough to say, okay, God is with us. The God of the universe is with us. Yes, that is good. He showed up in the first century. But in in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, God offers something that I think is really interesting. It's that God actually deeply cares about you. But there's some kind of longing and thought process about about you that that maybe you don't think about, like God thinking about you this way. Listen to what he says in verse 6 and 7. I have destroyed nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste. They are deserted and empty. So what he's saying is, All around Judah, all around the southern kingdom, I have taken care of everybody. I've wiped them all out because they've been disobedient. And when he talks about their strongholds, in the ancient times, your city is the place that you hide, the place that you're safe, the place that you're secure. And he's saying, I've taken care of all that. I've shown that there are consequences for walking away from me. And yet he says in verse 7, O Jerusalem, I thought, I thought, I thought. God reflected and thought that he had done enough. Surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishment come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all that they did. I love this because what God is saying is, I don't get it. Like The God of the universe is saying, I don't understand. I've done everything to pursue you. I've been here. I've been waiting. I thought you would do this. And guess what? If you had changed, I wouldn't do all these consequences. I wouldn't punish you. There would be a restoration in things. It just struck me that when God says he hasn't abandoned you, it's not just that he hasn't abandoned you. He loves you. And he's just waiting for you to respond. John 3.16, a verse that we see all the time, that we hear, but it's very powerful. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And I think it's pretty cool. God sends his Son, you embrace his Son, you won't perish, you'll have eternal life. But the thing that's powerful about this verse is that it says, for God so loved the world. That God not abandoning you is not some strange, obscure duty that he has to you. The reason that God has not abandoned you in the midst of your own silliness and stupidity, in the midst of mine, is because he loves you. So I want you to hold on to that. God has not abandoned you, and he loves you. And he's thinking about you. Now, Jerusalem, Israel, is not going to accept that. In verse 8 it says, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. So all through this book, this phrase, the day of the Lord has been coming up. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord being the moment when God, for the consequences of our actions come pouring out on us in the end. But in Zephaniah, there's this talk about the day of the Lord being small days of the Lord, moments where you pay the consequences for your immediate sin, you know, you hit somebody, they hit you back. That's the day of the Lord for you, right? But there's also an ultimate end that involves death and a final judgment. And God lays it out here. It's going to happen. And yet all through Zephaniah, God keeps putting these little things in. The whole reason he's saying this is what the day of the Lord is going to look like is because he wants people to change, to turn around, to repent. It's not a hey this is the end of the world tough for you it's this is the way you're going you need to turn or these are the consequences that are going to happen well in our present time in a place where you and i are followers of jesus where we accept that jesus was god and that he died on the cross and rose from the dead the writer Paul kind of explains what this all looks like for us and explains how you and I might respond to this thought that the day of the Lord and the fiery anger of God and the jealous anger of God is coming on us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, he says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolater, nor the adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So what Paul says is, look, you guys were one way, but now you are different When you embrace Jesus, you've been washed. You've been sanctified, which means you've been made holy. You've been justified, which means you've been made right. But more importantly than all of that, there's something that's super special here. It's that you've been marked by Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That marking is a statement. That statement is, you have not been abandoned by God. So Paul's saying, you used to be this way, but you had an experience with God and you were marked. And that marking is a statement that you have not been abandoned by God. So when you sit in your room, or you feel alone, or you're wrestling with all the things that we've been talking about, I want you to hear, I've been marked by the Spirit of God. I am am not abandoned. But Peter, you can, the Apostle Peter kind of wants to expand this a little bit for us. And he says, therefore, and you can consider this therefore, even though it's not a therefore for this, you can consider it a therefore connected to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Therefore, based on that, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander and every, of every kind. Like newborn babies, create pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The thing that you have tasted when you've tasted that the Lord is good is that you have not been abandoned by God. That God has not abandoned you. And the thing that Peter says is that you need to go through this process of ridding yourself of these things. But you know what, how you rid things? It's not to say, okay, I'm going to work really hard to get rid of this. I'm going to work on my malice. The thing that you need to do is that you need to crave spiritual milk. You need to crave spiritual milk. Right? I don't know if you know what, how a baby is. For those of you who have little babies, you know this. For those of you who can remember your little babies, for those of you who've been around little babies, there's a little baby over there. All they think about is eating and pooping and pooping and eating and eating and pooping. But all they think about is eating and crying when they're hungry and eating. And so there's this, this just impulse in them. Now, we're not little babies. And we can all kind of reason so it looks a little different for us. I've been watching a Netflix show, so true confessions here, called Dark Matter. It's not the greatest sci-fi show ever, but the, the idea of the flick is that this crew is out in space and they all, they all wake up and they can't remember anything. They don't know who they are, but they can run a ship. And the re- way they explain this, one character says to another, like they're trying to figure out, well, how do you know how to do this? And she says, well, there is muscle memory. There's something that you've done so many times that it puts a groove so deep in your brain that there's no way to erase that. There's no way to erase it. It becomes, it's, it's just reflexive, right? It's just reflexive. You and I, if we're going to crave spiritual milk, have to develop disciplines that are reflexive, that we just naturally do them. But that means that we have to practice something. So to become a little baby and crave spiritual milk, you actually have to be an adult who practices things. Right? And so we've been going through Zephaniah, and I've given you some suggestions for how you can do that. So in the first week, chapter one of Zephaniah, it was bad, bad, bad. The world is going to fall apart. But in the middle of that, verse seven, God says literally in the Hebrew, shh. It's as if he's talking to teenagers and he's telling them the consequences and he anticipates them raising their hand or going, no, 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 wait a minute. I didn't say that. I didn't do that. No, 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 no. It was his fault. He's like, shh. Listen, and I said that what you could practice that week, this one simple thing, was that as you looked around in the world, as you looked at your own life, that instead of trying to justify things, instead of trying to argue with the world and talk about the way things should be, that you should just feel the weight of your own sin. Feel the weight of the brokenness of your community and of the world. Just feel it. Allow the weightiness of this to be on you. Practice, shh. It's a simple discipline. Be quiet. All right. Last week in chapter two, the writer says that the way that we can offset this, these consequences is to gather and seek. That if we seek righteousness and we seek humility together and seek the Lord we'll find refuge and restoration. But we have to gather and seek. That's the objective. And so what I suggested to you is one simple thing. When you get together around the dinner table or anywhere else, just once, you didn't have to do it a whole bunch of times, just practice one time. Just one time. All you need to do was open up your Bible and read it. With a group of people. Just read it. And allow the words that you read to be discussed and to impact. Didn't say do it every night. I just said try it once. If you haven't done that, I'd say try that. But tonight, in the midst of this idea of God has not abandoned you, I want to invite you just once this week to reach out and grab hold of God. In Acts 17, Paul says that God has just been sitting there waiting just at an arm's length away from man. Just all you need to do is reach out. So I'm going to invite you to sit down with one person or sit down with a couple people this week, one time, and pray for a half hour. I want you to pray for this community. I want you to pray for one another. I want you to pour out whatever you need to confess. I'm just asking you one time this week to pray. Because these three ideas of be quiet, gather with your people and seek righteousness and humility, and understand that God has not abandoned you by actually embracing him in relationship and maybe asking what it is that he's trying to direct you in. I want to close tonight, and then we have some time to talk, but I want to close with one story, and then offer you just a few more thoughts. But when, it, when we talk about God has not abandoned you, it kind of reminded me of this story that I have with my dad. So 20 years ago or so, I was in college ministry, and there was a young woman who had completely lost it mentally. So she had just had a nervous breakdown. And she was huddled in somebody else's <laughs> house. She wouldn't eat, and she would not leave the house. And so Sue and I went over, you know, fresh-faced, you know, 23- and 4-year-old, we were very young, we're going to go help this girl get out of here and get to Palo Verde Hospital. We got it. So we go in there, and we talk, and she's not going anywhere, and the person who's whose house it is is kind of getting frustrated and it's getting tense. And so I'm like, I'm going to call my dad. So I call my dad. My dad has lots of experience with this stuff. So he comes and he goes upstairs and he walks into the apartment and he looks at the young woman and he says, you want to go out for a smoothie? She's like, yeah. He's like, let's go. And off for the smoothie she went, and then off to Palo Verde she went. It was as if the Jedi, I mean, I remember like the room just got <laughs> calm, and he said, do you want to go out for a smoothie? I want to go out for a smoothie. But the peace that I felt, the, the opportunity that I had as a kind of a newbie in ministry to be able to call my dad and have him come rushing in on you know his horse and rescue me was the sense of, my dad hasn't abandoned me. And the feeling that that gave me was this feeling of peace and confidence and courage. Right? And it's a beautiful picture for me of what God does in our life. So you're sitting in those moments where you're in a big group of people and you're like, I feel alone. Or you're in a place where you're just kind of pouring condemnation on yourself. I want you to remember, God has not abandoned you. He loves you, and that even in the midst of your stupidity, he's right there, and he will rescue you. All you need to do is reach out. And I just want you to imagine what kind of world we would live in if all of us passionately were people who were like, "God will not abandon us." That how infectious that would be and how that would change the way that you and I would behave. And not just how it would change this community, but how it would change the places you work and the neighborhoods that you're in if, if you were confident that God has not abandoned you. I guarantee it would change you. It would change me. And that's what makes me excited about holding on to that phrase and about stepping out and pursuing God in that way. I have a few minutes. Anybody have any questions, comments, things they want to add to the sermon? Questions, thoughts? Do, 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 do. I need, like, a, the what is that? The course game show music, Jeopardy song. Thank you. I'm going to get that on my phone so I can play it when I ask questions. Do, 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 do. All right, no comments, no thoughts. I got four minutes. Oh, thank you. That's Really, all I was looking for was to pull a few few compliments from people. Yeah, and that's right. The teenagers. That, that that's good. No, no pushbacks. Nothing. All right. Well, if you have any thoughts, you could talk to me afterwards. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for my community. Thank you for uh, their willingness to, to roll with things. And I just ask that you would bless our time together and that you would bless uh, the breaking of your bread, the singing, and the eating. And I ask that in your holy name. Amen.